Welcome to Wherever You Go, There You Are. In this podcast, we will discuss addiction, recovery, and thriving on the other side. If you are sober curious, in recovery, or someone affected by another person's addiction, this podcast is for you. Each week, we will speak with someone in recovery or affected by addiction, or an expert in the recovery space. I am your host, Vanessa Wellstead. I hope that by sharing our stories, you feel less alone and more a part of. Good morning. Thanks for being with us today. I'm Vanessa Wellstead, the host of Wherever You Go, There You Are, a podcast about addiction, recovery, and thriving on the other side. And this morning, I'm thrilled to have with us Mary L. from Northern California. In a qualification style episode, Mary is going to share with us her experience, strength, and hope, after which we will have a short conversation about recovery and her journey. So without further ado, I am excited to introduce you all to Mary. Take it away, Mary. Hey, everybody. It's great to be here. Great to be sober today. Thank you, Vanessa, for the lead. I really appreciate it. And uh, I'm really excited to talk about um, I'm going to get a little teary about Alcoholics Anonymous. Happens to me every time I share. So um, my sobriety date is November 17th, 2013. I um, have a sponsor. I have sponsees. I go to a meeting every day. I um, love this program. It has given me a life beyond my wildest dreams. I have four kids who are now teenagers and above. So I just want to qualify. So I'll give you a little bit about where, um, how, how I got to where I am today, what happened, um, what it's like, and, and what it's like today. So um, I was born in, the, in 1967 to two alcoholics who were also parent, children, children of alcoholics, and there's alcoholism throughout my family on both lines. So the fact that I'm an alcoholic is, shouldn't be a surprise to anybody, except for, of course, it was a surprise to me for over 30 years when I tried to drink. But I'm the youngest of six kids. I have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are my brothers. I, I kid you not. And I have a sister named Jennifer. I think she's still a little frazzled. She's not part of the bu- biblical setting. Um, my mother stopped drinking in the early 1960s when um, she fell down a rat hole similar to mine. And uh, she went to rehab. My father stopped drinking on his own in the mid-1960s. And I think my mother had myself and my older brother, Luke, um, because she wanted to have two children in sobriety. So she had both of us. She had me sober. She stopped going to Alcoholics Anonymous at about seven years or so, maybe a little earlier. So I was raised by a dry drunk mother and a dry drunk father for a lot of years. Um, My dad picked up alcohol again when I was nine, and he stopped drinking about 20 years later because he, again, fell down that terrible uh, rat hole that happens if you drink and uh, try to control your drinking. So um, when I was four, my dad is 38. He retired from business. He had a successful business and he chose to move out to Belvedere, California, which is another little town close to where I am across the Golden Gate Bridge um, from San Francisco. So we moved out. I don't have a lot of memories of my childhood other than, um, first of all, don't sing any country Western songs for me. We had a lot of money and my father um, and my mother fought relentlessly. And I remember there wasn't a lot of love in our house house um and they're old my oldest brother is 18 years older so it was really just me and my brother um being raised by wolves as i like to say although i also have heard a story about a woman who got sober after being locked
locked in a box for 13 years. So I want to tell you guys, my life is a lot better than that woman. But it, it does prove to me that you can stay sober under any conditions. So um, fast forward to the age of nine, when my uh, parents announced they were going to get divorced, which was really my father leaving my mother. And my mother was very distraught because all she'd ever done was raise kids. And I remember being very scared at that age as to what was going to happen to me with my parents' divorce. My father moved to San Francisco to be a bon vivant in the city. And my mother was left really restless, irritable, and discontent, which is one of those things that happens to alcoholics if they don't work a program. So I have since come to find a lot of compassion for my mom and for what she was faced with. And I was the only one left in the house. So unfortunately, I got the brunt of my mother's escapade. So um, when I started, I first started smoking cigarettes at sixth grade and smoking crack cigarettes, the ones that smell a lot. The, um, and I would do that. And then in seventh grade, my brothers um, used to take me to rock concerts and they would give me uh, a joint and I started smoking pot seventh grade, eighth grade. I liked it. It was, uh, it was nice. It, you know, I, I want to say drugs are part of my story, but it really never was a drug related story per se. I, my biggest downfall was alcohol. Um, but I did like smoking pot. I barely graduated from eighth grade. I had, I found out at 44 years of age that I had a, uh, uh, ADHD. So that coupled with my crazy wild streak and no parenting on the home front left me to kind of like spiral. And uh, I, I was a, I would do anything to rebel against authority in school, starting in eighth grade and seventh grade. And it was the summer of my eighth grade year before I was sent off to military academy where my brothers had gone um, because my parents really wanted me out of the house. And I think I would probably have wanted me out of the house, too, um, when I picked up alcohol for the first time. So when I was given that my father was having an engagement party and they were passing around champagne and I took the glass of champagne and I loved it. The minute the feeling of the alcohol going down my throat, I thought I had found my solution. I knew I had found my solution and it was the best feeling. So what I define a normie is somebody who takes a little bit of wine, maybe just a little quarter of a glass, puts it in the fridge with some saran wrap, comes back to it a couple of days later. That's my definition of a normie. That is not how I drank. That night that I took my first sip of champagne, I ended up throwing up all over my father's car as he pulled out of the driveway in front of all of his closest friends at the age of 13. And I woke up the next day and I said, that's it. I found my solution. Most people, I think, if they had an allergy to strawberries and it made them break out in hives, they'd probably not eat another strawberry. But for me, I thought I had found the best thing that I had ever, ever known in my life. So I proceeded to drink and, and uh, it, my way through boarding school. And then I got kicked out at junior year because I was failing in school. I was rebelling against authority. I was having parties in my room. I, was, I would put vodka on my desk and pretend it was water which I quickly was found out and my dad had to fly out and they they officially kicked me out of school so from there I went to a different boarding school because my parents again were really kind of fragmented my mother was moving around the, the world and with various and sundry boyfriends and my father was was remarried and she didn't really like kids so at the end of the day they found another boarding school for me and that was my last year of high school and I ended up you, using almost every drug on the planet, um, 
except for heroin that I can't remember. I think I've used almost everything else. Um, and I, uh, but it wasn't, it, the drugs were just a sidebar to my story with my relationship with alcohol. I mean, I did cocaine because I could drink more when I did cocaine. And my favorite activity in that boarding school was to sit around with my best friend who was another alcoholic. Um, and I since have found out she goes in and out of AA. And we would drink so much vodka every night, about a fifth of vodka, and we would cry about how horrible our lives were. And that to me was a great night. So um, that I loved alcohol. And I remember one morning, it was 6am and the sun was coming up and I had lines of cocaine in front of me and I had my beer in my hand and everybody had gone home. And I said to myself, I can either do cocaine and deal it, or I can stop doing cocaine right now. And I decided in that moment, God kissed me on the cheek and I stopped doing cocaine. And I stopped all drugs, but I didn't stop alcohol. Um, that was a non, that was a non-starter. So I proceeded to order a, a pizza to math class and get kicked out of that boarding school. Um, and I, there I was a high school dropout. My parents were like, what are we going to do with her? My father per se, my mother wasn't really focused. And uh, he said, I think the Bay Area, because we lived here in San Francisco Bay Area is your problem. So why don't you find a different community college and you can start there. So I was a high school and he said, this is your last chance. He was embarrassed and he was, my brothers had all gone to Ivy League schools and were very successful in their own right. And I was a high school dropout. So I went to a Santa Barbara City College. And there's where I learned the most valuable lesson of them all, which it, that took me through the rest of my drinking, was that if I could get straight A's in school and make everybody think that I was doing wonderfully, I could drink with impunity and nobody would bother me. So um, I did that. I started, I learned, I taught myself how to learn using note cards. My favorite activity in those days, because I didn't like to go out because I forgot to mention that I was a blackout drinker. So if I went out, I wasn't sure where I was going to end up. So I really liked to sit at home and isolate and drink my wine and eat Triscuits and smoke cigarettes and then watch the TV go double. That was the idea of a really good night for me because then I didn't have to worry about drinking out and making any of you see that I was truly an alcoholic. And I also was it was safer for me. So I proceeded to finish two years there. My family got off my back. Everybody got off my back. I was super careful not to drink too much in front of my family and the people that would care. And I found alcoholic friends and I transferred to the University of Southern California where I graduated with honors and I joined a sorority and I found a bunch of girls who drank like I did and guys and I drank and I blacked out and I drank and I blacked out and I got straight A's. And that was the perfect solution for my story because everybody got off my back. So when I graduated from USC with, remember I had never gotten a high school diploma but everybody thought I was doing so well. I proceeded to move up to the Bay Area from Los Angeles and I got um, really good jobs, really big, high profile, sexy, um, outstanding kind of jobs to the point where nobody really bothered me. And that was perfect. Did I black out? Totally. Did I drink my, by myself? A lot. But I learned that I had to suit up and show up for work if I wanted the facade to continue. So I did that. And at about the age of 26, I met my uh, soon-to-be husband, and he was a great alcoholic like I was. He also was a really good drunken driver, and so he was better than me. So, And he would get a little less drunk at parties than I did, and uh, I proceeded to... Um, we ended up having this wonderful relationship, and I remember the night before our wedding, 
Oh, and everybody thought he looked really good on paper because he had a JD MBA from really good schools and he looked like he had a lot of potential and he, nobody really knew that he also drank as badly as I did, almost not as badly. And the most important thing about him is that he never questioned my drinking. I want to make it very clear to the audience that if anybody ever questioned my drinking, they were out of my life. That was just the end of our, our relationship. So we got married in a big fancy wedding. And I would black tie wedding in the city. And I want to say that a normal couple would just go to their wedding. But we had to have a very concerted conversation that we weren't going to get drunk at our wedding. And we didn't. We did a good job. And we proceeded to move around the world and, and started having babies. We moved to New York. We moved to Hong Kong. We moved um, to La Jolla. We were and we both had great jobs. I continued to work to my kids. The only person that was on to me, really, besides my my husband traveled a lot for work. He was with big banks. Um, the only person that was really on to me was the nanny. So if you're looking for a good codependent when you're drinking, you can get a good nanny and they can completely cover for you. So they helped me raise the babies as I had four in, in six years, four kids in six years. So we moved back to Marin County. I wanted to settle to be close to my dad. I had this dream of living this high pollutant lifestyle here in Marin. And we bought the million dollar house and we had the pool and we had all of the things that you could want. And I was still blackout drinking periodically throughout the year, drinking a lot every night, um, holding down a job. I started running marathons. I ran six marathons. I mean, that was part of my picture because I and the most important thing about my life with my husband was that I really wanted to have the prettiest Christmas card on the mantle because I wanted everybody to see how great I was. And so people would call me and they'd say, you're so great. And that's what I needed to hear because I needed your validation to feel better about myself. And nobody knew. And they were, they would all say, I don't know how you do it. You raise these kids. You're really involved in their private schools. You're super, you're working this big job, which I had a big job and all the other things that I did. And I, that's what I needed in order to feel better about myself was that everybody would think that I was so fantastic. So um, fast forward um, to 2009. When my ex-husband, now ex-husband, um, we were skiing at Lake Tahoe. We had a ski house that we rented every year. Our kids were on the ski team in the mountains of Lake Tahoe. I was skiing with my nine and my six-year-old and my husband in the terrain park at a ski resort. And my husband flew over a jump and landed on his head. So he landed on his head and he was seizing in the snow and there was blood all over the snow. And my six and my nine-year-old and I were completely left not knowing what was going to happen. And they took a helicopter to fly him out to a trauma center. And the very first thought I had when the ski patrol woman came over and said, we're not sure if your husband's going to make it, um, was where can I go where I can drink this feeling away? That's all I thought. It wasn't, oh my God, my kids just saw their, their dad get hurt. Oh my God, I don't know if he's going to live or he's going to die. And there was none of the emotions had really even sunk in. So I planned an evening where I could get home, feed the kids Benadryl to get them to go to sleep. And I blacked out, drank that night. And I got a call at three in the morning. I was still drunk. And they said, your husband's going to live. We stopped the bleeding in the back of his brain, but we're not sure about the future. And lo and behold, 10 days after three hospitals later, we got him the right care and they sent him home. And I was ill prepared for what, what came to roost. So just to give you an idea, if you fast forward to, to today, he had gone from a very high level functioning investment banking job to now he is a, living in a homeless shelter and working in a gift shop. So I want to give you kind of the landscape. And then that's when my drinking ticked up. And that's when um, the intervention started. So my, um, my family did the first intervention on me, which of course I ignored. 
And I said, um, I didn't have a problem with alcohol. I want to tell you that my drinking picked up to the point where I was no longer hiding it very well. So that's important to know. And then fast forward from there in 2011, I was given a one in 2010, excuse me, I was given a wonderful job by a very high, per, highly important person in San Francisco and, and an old mentor of mine. And he handed me a job on a silver platter and he said, you'll be perfect for this. And he didn't know what had happened with my ex-husband who was sinking slowly into depression, of course, with his brain injury and the four kids and the nanny and the big house and all that. And I was drinking to the point, and I really want you guys to hear this because if you're drinking at night, your behavior during the day, if you're anything like me, was impacted to a great extent. So I wasn't drinking on the on the job that he handed me, but I was drinking at night to the point where my behavior during the day was irrational and I was super full of self. And I really was a terrible employee and I got fired. So I went to my husband after I got fired from that job and I said, I just got fired from this job and I think I might have a problem with alcohol, but I was super careful not to tell too many people that I was an alcoholic because I was afraid if I told too many people, I would lose the option of being able to continue to drink. So we looked and we found an uh, outpatient center where I went for it five days a week for a couple hours a day. And two weeks into that outpatient program, I uh, got a cocktail party. It was Christmas time in the mail, got a cocktail party invitation. And I looked at it and I said, I'm going to go to that party. And I really want you guys to hear this because the, this is when the yet started. The, oh, that hasn't happened to me yet. It all started. I went to that Christmas party and I had a glass of vodka tonic and I put it in a glass and it looked like water. And I went with my husband and a year and a half, fast forward from that one drink, I ended up in the uh, San Francisco psychiatric ward with a 0.36 blood alcohol level all by myself with nobody left in the world and another job blown up for the same reasons that the first job I'd gotten fired. So as I lay there in the hospital and I was put in a psych ward that night and the only one person would help me and it was my old boss. I called her at 630 in the morning drunk from a hotel room because the, I was living in a hotel room and I was waiting outside Safeway for Safeway to open with holes in my, my clothing from cigarette burns waiting for Safeway to open to sell me some wine. And uh, I was almost raped in the psych ward. And of course I talked my way out of that psych ward and I ended up leaving and driving drunk to another hotel. And then I ended up in the second psych ward. And it's at the second, and that's two psych wards in four days. And it's at the second psych ward that it really struck me. The, the psychi psychiatrist came over, looked in my eyes and he said, you look really sad. And I said to myself, like I hadn't had a feeling in years because I drank my feelings away. And I thought to myself, maybe I really am sad. And so I went from there. Um, and I remember I was waiting for my one friend left. I'd lost everything. I'd given my kids away to my husband to raise so I could drink more. I had no job. I had no career. I had no friends. I had no family who would talk to me. I had one woman in the world who was helping me get sober. And she negotiated with my father to give me 90 days at a treatment facility. And she came to pick me up with the with an entire bag because I had no clothes left. I had nothing left. I had she had a bag of Walmart clothing, and she brought it brought it to me. And I remember I was standing next to a man, and he was doing horrible things at the psych ward, waiting for her to show up. And I looked over at him, and I said to myself, "How did I? How did a girl from Belvedere, California, get to be in a place like this? I'm way better than he is." And I look back at that moment, you guys, and I realize that. I was no better than he was. I was in the same psych ward that he was in. So who's to say that I could judge him? 
So I went to treatment and the 90 days that I spent at this beautiful treatment facility, I just said to myself, I'm going to find a guy. I don't have a problem with alcohol. You guys are my problem. And if you had my problem, you'd drink too. So I left that treatment facility. And the first meeting I went to, when I, and the only place that I could move into, because we told the, the beautiful house was gone. My husband wanted nothing to do with me. I was starting a divorce. The, uh, I went to a sober living environment. And I had everything that I could possibly have in the world fit into a hefty trash bag. I had nothing left. And I went to a meeting and I met a guy and he thought I was all that in a bag of chips. And because I looked really good because I had the four carat diamond on my finger. I had the Audi. I had the, you know, which later got repossessed. I had the, you know, the looks. I had put myself together really well. And we met. And I tell you what, you guys, I never tell sponsees not to get in a relationship. But I, I will tell you from my experience that I relapsed over him six separate times. So after all that, I still tried every time. I would have one night relapses where it got worse, never better. And I ended up, my last relapse, I ended up being put in another side in the hospital and they brought the police. They said, if you don't stop screaming, we're going to have to put you in jail. That was my experience with drinking. All of them were one night. All of them were equally as bad as the last one. So I went from there and it, it was November 17th, 2013. And I don't know what happened to me, but something happened to me where I was like, I think I, I can't drink. And that's surrender is the way of strength. And I had to surrender to the fact that maybe I did have a drinking problem. Maybe you guys were right and I was wrong. And maybe I didn't know how to drink one day at a time. So I listened to your crazy suggestions like wash your face, brush your teeth and make your bed. Doesn't make sense when it comes to drinking. The 12 steps on the wall didn't make any sense to me. I thought that you guys were crazy. But I did realize that there was hope in the rooms and that people had a shiny, bright light in their eyes. And that maybe I could do, live a better life if I, if I stuck with the winners. And I proceeded to um, one day at a time, you know, and in my first four and a half years, I was on food stamps, I was on welfare, I had to end up waiting tables, I sent out over 2000 resumes. And I'll tell you what got me to change my life was the saying that you guys taught me, which is um, right action leads to right thinking. So it was one day I was waiting for my shift to start at work for waiting tables. And lo and behold, I applied to my alma mater to get into their master's program. I was accepted into the master's program. Three weeks later, a Fortune 100 technology company called me back and said, we want you to come work for us. And here I am four years later, still at that company. But I tell you what, when you're on food stamps and welfare and you are you are at the, and I was close to being homeless. My sponsor talked to me about what it was going to be like to move into a homeless facility. You have to get grateful really fast because as my sponsor taught me, a grateful alcoholic doesn't drink, right? And so I had to be grateful for the smallest of things when I was down and out and I really didn't see much of a solution in this. And I thought the ninth step promises were applicable to everyone else but me. So without boring you with all the gory details, I want to tell you that I have four kids today. I support all four of them by myself. I have an incredible job. I have colleagues who like me. You guys taught me how to be a mother, a sister, a daughter, a friend, and an employee. And you guys taught me how to get along with other people. And I've lost jobs in sobriety. And I, and I remember I went up to my sponsor's sponsor, my grand sponsor, and I said, I just lost another job, but I'm sober. And she said, well, honey, work is about relationships. And I was like, oh, that's true. I don't know how to have a relationship. So I had to learn from you guys. 
And uh, life's consistent, the cash and prizes have come my way, but I wanna say sobriety is really slow for me. It was not a quick journey. It's not an overnight matter. I put AA first, I go to a meeting every single day. I pray and I meditate. I tried, my sponsor died of cancer in September. So I'm working with a new sponsor and working that out. I've got sponsees and I am uh, grateful to be sober. And I'm part of a gratitude list every day because gratitude is a mini form of prayer. And I'll end on this. If you're worried about finding a God in your life, we only ask you to find a higher power. And one plus one equals two, which is a power greater than you. So sometimes it's just reaching out to the people in the group. And with that, I've spoken enough, Vanessa, so I will turn it over to you. Mary, thank you so much. Wow, what a miracle you are. And what a gift your story is for all of our listeners. Um, Wow, I'm just really blown away. I had not heard your story before. Um, I don't know if I led with this, but Mary and I were introduced by another guest on the um, podcast and a sober mom in our Marin County Fellowship. And she said, you will not be disappointed by listening to Miss Mary. And whoa, that is one heck of a story. That's one heck of a ride you've been on. Um. I identified with so many of the the feelings um, that you described along the way. I, too, come from a big family. Um, I'm one of five, so I know how how that goes. I often say that I remember from a really early age just wanting that attention, wanting to, to share the spotlight, and it's really hard when there's so many... There's so much competition in a household at a young age. And I, too, was raised by a dry drunk. And that is a different flavor of alcoholic, you know? Um, so I and, – and I loved that you ended on the note of gratitude because you talked about the gratitude that you had to hold on to in the beginning of your sobriety. And I immediately was curious about how gratitude plays a role in your life today. Sure. Um, I have a gratitude group that I was put on in touch with, um, with about six of us that have ended up sticking to it. And I write a gratitude list every day and I try to stay at it. And what gratitude does for those who are new to the program and you think it's a little funky and weird, gratitude gets you out of the poor me, poor me, poor me a drink, right? So that's why they say a grateful alcoholic doesn't drink. You can be grateful for the your pillow under your head, the food in the fridge, the sunshiny skies, the chance to hike today with my 19-year-old daughter. You know, all those little things, I mean... And, and you practice gratitude for me anyway. I practiced when I was down and out because at the end of the day, you have to practice. It's a practice, so you have to get good at it. So when you're really down and out, you can find gratitude reasons because you're used to it. So that's how gratitude plays a role for me. I constantly have to stop what I'm doing and write down a gratitude list to my group or I will be shunned by my peers. I love that. And before we got on, when we were just chatting before this talk, I said, wow, you have a daughter who asked you to go hiking with her today. I mean, that's, I get teary over things like that, you know, that our kids really want to be with us, that they want us to be um, a part of their world. And what does that look like for you? Do you still pinch yourself that your kids 
so want you around and your opinion and your company. Oh, yeah. I mean, I can't take credit for my kids are very successful all each in their own right. They're all doing incredibly well in life, but I can't take credit for that 100%. But I can tell you that they didn't have to be raised by a drunk mom. And I don't know what worked for me in 2013 to get me sober, but I remember somebody very close to me said, if you can't stop drinking for you, can you stop drinking for your kids? And that worked. That really helped me a lot because um, they didn't have to fight a home front battle where they were hiding me in the closet. And when I came into Alcoholics Anonymous, when, and I, my kids were all incredibly suffering. One had an eating disorder at the age of nine. Another one had psychiatric troubles. I was pulled into a neuropsych appointment. They did a neuropsychology test at a private school on her. And I was forced by the principal to listen to what I, my alcoholism had done to my oldest child. And that hurt a lot. And my son left school because um, he tried to run away because he said he didn't think there was anything left there for him. Anyway. Yeah. So if your kids are struggling and their mental health is suffering, I promise you I've been there. And it does get better if you, as you get better. You know, the alcoholic is like a tornado roaring through the lives of people, right? And the guy who comes up in the big book from the cyclone cellar and says, ain't it grand, the wind stopped blowing? It's not that easy. That's what the steps are for. So I make a living amends to my kids every day. I'm keeping a big house for them so that <laughs> they don't have to, they have their own bedrooms when they come home from college, you know, and I uh, have an extra car they use and I do all those little things and, and I try to listen to them and I try not to scream at them and I try to just like keep my cool and pause when agitated are doubtful and even though they're teenagers they're really pretty darn good kids you know they're mm. kids but they're pretty darn good kids i don't love everything that comes out of their mouth but i don't have to react to it in the way that my initial first thought would have me do you know i'm not responsible for that first thought that comes in my head but i'm responsible for everyone after that and so my first response when they're shitty to me might be something terrible but i'm i uh, try to get my wits about me and respond in kind in a nice soft thoughtful manner and we don't have a loud house that's the good news Whew. um that's a lot to unpack that's a lot to be grateful for my sponsor reminds me you know she says how many years do you have um when i first met her it was 16 but now it's 18 and she says you can take that many seconds for yourself, you know, count that many seconds before the dragon mom voice comes out. Cause dragon mom can come out really quick. You know, my kids are three, six and eight. Our house is loud. <laughs> Our house is loud. And I do try to practice gratitude and remind myself that it won't always be this loud. And it used to sound trite when people would say like, enjoy the mess, enjoy the noise because it won't always be there. And I try to remind myself of that. But when you do get overstimulated, you know, it's it's overwhelming with those with those people and little people and lots of needs and lots of demands. So I like to hear your reminder. That well, I will say it physically is harder on you now and mentally it's harder on you later. And do I do it perfectly? No, you guys, I want to say that I do a lot of mistakes. I've made so many mistakes in sobriety, like embarrassing, terrible things. Like I got arrested at two and a half years of sobriety for something stupid I did. I got exonerated, but nonetheless, I mean, I've done really, but the most important thing I haven't done is I haven't picked up. 
and I'm allowed to have that thought, right? That if I walk by a bar, that it would be a great idea to walk inside and have a drink. Like I do think that sometimes or with my pasta or whatever at dinner, but uh, it's that follow-up thought, that second step thought, like when the kids are yelling at you and they're screaming loudly or you want to have a drink or whatever, it's that follow-up thought that really makes a difference. So what my personal prayer is that I use all the time is God, please help me. I'm sick. And I don't know why that works, but it works. So prayer doesn't have to be anything complicated. It can be as simple as that. So for those listening, I think there's a shame cycle that can happen when you see your children suffering, right? And you know in your heart of hearts that putting down the drink would help. Um, But it's hard to get there. Do you have any suggestions for the the mom who, or the, or the dad, but the parent who knows putting down the drink would make everything better and just doesn't know where to start. Yeah, that's good. Good question. Um, first of all, it's the greatest gift you can give your kids. So, um, and I'm working with the woman right now who doesn't want to go to treatment. Um, she's not a mom, but nonetheless, I know that first step is really scary and The most important thing, you know, from, how do I put this? Alcohol is not, alcohol is cunning, baffling, and powerful, and it actually supersedes motherhood and fatherhood. Like, it, it, there's not, it's not, parenthood is not strong enough to overcome an addiction to alcohol or drugs. So, um, you know, it starts with the baby step, right? Just don't have a drink for five minutes. Don't have a drink for 20 minutes, an hour, two hours. Just like pray for midnight is one of my favorite things, you know? And if I have a sh- crappy day and, I, and I'm and i in bed most of the day and I'm completely useless, um, if I haven't had a drink, I've had a really good day. <laughs> and get yourself to a meeting because meetings, there's, you know, in the beginning, I went to two or three meetings a day. I mean, I felt really safe and nurtured in a meeting, and that really helped. But try to break it into small little chunks. Like, not even a day at a time is probably too long. Like, just, I'm not going to have a drink until noon. I'm making that up. It's 11.15 right now. And then, um, and wait till noon. Okay, then I'm not going to have a drink till 1. I mean, try that. Um, but But the love of my children wasn't enough. It was not enough. It had to be, I had to get sober for me and I have to put my oxygen mask on before I put my kids' oxygen mask on. And my kids know that Alcoholics Anonymous is ahead of even them. It's the most important thing in my life. So, mm. Yeah, we, um, my kids definitely have no vocabulary. We definitely have a shared vocabulary around recovery in our house. And it's interesting, even with launching the podcast, like trying to figure out how to talk to my kids about the content of it. They know that this is a large part of my life. And then, um, you know, just how to talk about drugs and alcohol at a young age is really, it's, it, it, it makes me recognize that we came for the drinking and we stay for the thinking because it's a lot more applicable to talk to my kids about our mental health um, and to the rest of the world. This is about our thinking. You know, um, we have a thinking problem. We have a thinking problem. (laughs) Yeah. And I want to say, because you have younger kids, I put my one of my children in rehab at 13 
because I saw her drinking. So, I mean, having an open communication and then she stopped for a little while, picked it up again, which they told us would happen. She's doing what I did. She's got a very successful life, doing well in college, all the other stuff. So I had one quick conversation with her. I'm not an Alan, as I like to say, I create Al-Anons, but I don't go to Al-Anon. But um, I said to her one day, I, and it's the last time I talked about it with her, I said, if you feel like it's a problem that's ruining your life, come to me and we'll talk about a solution. And I've left it alone there um but i think they're it but they're very honest with me about their drinking and drug use so i know what they've done and that's really helpful in our relationship i mean i can't say they've been spared from alcoholism because i don't think they have because they've got two alcoholic parents but um just continuing to be that non-judgmental um communication is really important and listening to what an advocate you are for your your kids success and mental health my goodness we try we try to be open about mental health issues because they've all got adhd and they've got various and sundry kinds of depression and anxiety and bipolar my oldest has bipolar and all of that so we are very open about it and there's no shame if you need glasses you get glasses if you need meds you get meds i mean that's how i've chosen to raise my kids i love that i love that i have my oldest has sensory processing my daughter's a sensory seeker like who knows where we're going with my third, you know, but we, I do feel that being in recovery has allowed for me to take the blinders off and really face the music mm-hmm. and, um, really stay solution oriented. Um, yeah. but that's exactly right. That's exactly right. I think it's a real gift that we're able to be in the present and doesn't, you know, for anyone who again is listening and kind of feels like, gosh, life is overwhelming this sounds like a, a really big undertaking facing the music. It is. Like, it's no small feat. Do you know? So, um, but... Well, and, and I would be remiss if I didn't mention to you, Vanessa, one of the things I noticed about my drinking with my kids was that they were they had skeletons in the closet that were really big. And they didn't talk about it because it was mommy's little secret. You know, mommy drinks too much. That's mommy's secret. Let's not bring it out in school. So if you want to get sober, you're in the right place in Alcoholics Anonymous. But the other thing I think it's really important is if you can't afford a counselor outside of the therapist, outside the school, for the at the very least, let the school counselor get into involved in your recovery. Because otherwise, your kids are walking around with this shameful secret that mommy has a drinking problem or dad has a drinking problem and they're not talking about it. They're carrying that burden. And if you can give them a safe place to vent, like at a school or with a therapist, let them have that. That's a gift you can give your kids as you recover. Sure. That's a great point. Um, I know the therapists at our school, they just do God's work. They're just really um, such a safe space for our kids. Um, And again, they help you to introduce a vocabulary that you can use in and out of the home that makes sense for our children and is developmentally appropriate for them. Yep. So, well, thank you, Mary. It's been such a joy to have you on today. Thank you. And I, you're just such a badass. I mean, oh, thank you. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> I don't think that every day, but I appreciate the accolade so much. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I'm excited to get to know you more yeah. offline. Yeah. Um, So thanks a lot for all of you listening. You can follow along on Instagram, wherever you go. There you are, um, YGA. And have a wonderful, wonderful weekend ahead. 
and congratulations on your sobriety. Thank you, my friend. It's a pleasure. Great to talk to you all. Thanks, Mary. I am Vanessa Wellstead with Wherever You Go, There You Are. Thanks so much for listening today. I hope you were able to identify with feelings, if not facts, and you come away feeling a bit more a part of. If you liked what you heard, please like, follow, and subscribe. I'm very passionate about educating our communities on the language of recovery. Help us spread the mission by sharing with friends and family. If you would like to join us for a conversation on the world of addiction and recovery, please DM us or shoot me an email at vw at Remember, it's a we game, not a me game.